Hey, hey, water coolians. Welcome back to a, another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Today, we are joined by a good friend of the program, Min Lee from Quality Under Pressure Podcast, to have a productive conversation about death and the afterlife. I thought it was important to have Min on the show as he brings such passionate insights uh, to really discuss a topic that seems to be on our minds more and more in our current climate, especially in the United States. I don't know how it is outside of the United States. I would love to know. But death has become, especially in the United States, death has become this fear-mongering tool to control the narrative and really incite panic in situation where it's not its not really needed. Um, as I'll mention in this episode, by 2023, the death industry in the U.S. will have a revenue of $68 billion. Ladies and gentlemen, we have monetized death here in the U.S. To this episode, this episode is about understanding death, building a conversation about what happens when that day comes, the acceptance of death when death is naturally supposed to occur. Right now, we are obviously in times where death is not natural. People who should not be dying are dying. And my hope after listening to this episode is the next time an outlet for whatever reason tries to use the fear of death to push the narrative into unsafe situations, you feel comfortable moving past their BS. Basically, to sum up my point, do not allow death to define life. Please be safe. You know, your, your, your life is more important than your death. And then on the reverse of death, we also discuss the celebration of life, a little more lighter, and how gender reveal parties may have to be retired. Seriously, like you guys will not believe this. A family accidentally made a pipe bomb to celebrate a pregnancy. What? what what's wrong with cake? You know, I'm a pie guy, but I'm still going to demolish a slice of cake if it's offered. We don't need to be making bombs or burning down 47,000 acres of forest to celebrate life. Chill, people, all right? So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 34, titled The Afterlife, with Min Lee. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not. Because they're real. Oh, and by the way, I know it's like common on Quality Under Pressure to have a drink. I do have a little bit of alcohol. I don't know if you want. I don't know if you want to get some. We can take a quick break and uh, you can grab one. But I just want to throw that out there that I am sipping on um, gin and twisted iced tea because I didn't have any other mixes. Dude, I'm going to go grab something quick then. I will will entertain my audience. Okay. I don't know how to entertain my audience as a single (laughs) podcast. That's why... That's why that's why I don't have a single podcast, ladies and gentlemen, because I don't know, this is awkward. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna cut it. I'm just staring at myself, talking to myself. Um I'm just gonna cut it as soon as Min gets back. I would have made something nicer, but I just wanted to grab something quickly. Cheers, man. Cheers. It's not bad. Gin and iced tea and twisted iced tea. Not a bad combo. It sounds good. All right, Min, are you ready to jump into water cooler talk? Let's do it. I'm excited. All right, this story is from ABC 13, Houston, Texas. Arizona man learns mom's body sold to military, detonated in experiment. Jim Stoffer, an Arizona man, was distraught to learn that five years after his mother Doris had passed away, her body had been sold to the U.S. military for, quote, blast testing, which involves strapping the body to a chair before an explosive device was detonated underneath. Jim's mother Doris had passed away due to Alzheimer's, even though she did not have the gene. 
Doctors had then asked for the brand to study as they were worried the disease may have mutated. Unfortunately, her neurologist wasn't able to accept the body, so Jim, he reached out to the Biological Resource Center in Maricopa County, Arizona, who were willing to receive the body donation. Unknown to the Stoffers, they became one of, do- one of a dozen families who donated to the Biological Resource, Cent- Resource Center, BRC, and were not told what would happen to the bodies of their loved ones. According to an investigation by Reuters, Doris's body, and potentially many others, was sold to the U.S. military for explosive testing purposes, including the aforementioned blast testing. Quote, she was then supposedly strapped into a chair of some sort of apparatus, and a detonation took place underneath her. To basically kind of get an idea of what the human body goes through when a vehicle is hit by an IED. End quote. Doris's home remains unchanged. Memories of her and things she loved are still on display including a small box filled with only six ounces of her ashes Jim got back. Jim says, Every time there's a memory, every time there's a photograph, you look and there's this ugly thing that happened just there staring right at you. She will never be forgotten. So just a quick fact, the average human body takes about two to three hours to burn at 1400 to 1800 degrees Fahrenheit and will produce three to nine pounds of ash depending on the bone structure, not weight, of the deceased. So, man, as obviously, as you saw, the listeners will have seen, but I had a smile on my face while reading that story. The first time I read this headline of the story, I, I did laugh. <laughs> I, uh, I did think it was hilarious. Once I went a little more surface deep, I realized that that's someone's mother. Uh, so I took it a little more serious. But as Jim says, what happened was an ugly thing. But I just think it's weird that every time he looks at his deceased mother's ashes, he has that thought. We, you know, especially in Western society, specifically in the US, have like such a grim outlook on death, I feel like. You know, I covered the financial side of death in an episode with Chris Bales titled Must Love Death. But I'm a firm believer in like a more of a South American approach to death, more of it being a celebration. Sure, Doris passed away due to a horrible disease and her body was blown to smithereens. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, for Jim, are you going to allow those things to define her life? Uh, So, man, I want to ask you, do you agree or disagree with this being a situation in which the Stauffer family should be able to laugh about? Well, I'm definitely, when we get to my answer, I'm definitely not going to be binary. I think I could see, you know, sort of both sides. Why did you have that fact on the human body burning? Are you, do you want to get cremated when you die? Well, no, I was just like, uh, Jim had mentioned that he only got six ounces of ashes back from his mom. So, I just wanted the listeners to know, like, on average, you would get back, like, what, three to nine pounds of ash. Yep. So obviously there's a lot of his mom that's somewhere <laughs> somewhere else. That makes sense. And then the, the question is, do you think we like should sympathize and can see where Jim and his family are coming from? Yeah. And also, like, is this a situation that when they get to a point where they're comfortable, they should be able to laugh about? Like, literally, your mom exploded. <laughs> I don't think... So I don't think they're ever going to laugh about it. I think, you know, like, I'm just thinking, Maybe you that's know, just my sense of humor. And- oh, yeah, mine too. Mine too. Like, I'm thinking like when I die, I could care less what people do with my body. Like, obviously, that's why that's why I kind of sympathize with Jim and his family too, because the only concern that I have about my body after I pass away is how my family and my friends and my loved ones would react to it. Like, I'm glad that you brought up like different parts of the world view death and the body different ways. And my friends and my family are probably conditioned to the Western way of thinking about that. And they probably value my body in a way where 
that would that would be really hard for them if that if they knew that you know my body was being tossed around and blown up for some military test but like personally i don't care because i don't think my body is who i am um and so like it's like like, like your consciousness is who you are and so like if you're able to detach that from your body like they should remember who i was a different way it's like my body has nothing to do with that really and so i get where jim and his family are coming from because i too am human i too have been conditioned under the same sort of social pressures but like when i step back and think about it i'm just like yeah but like really it's just a it's just a body no it sounds crass it it is but i mean i think i mean that's the truth and i think you brought up a good point on me as a person i won't care what happens to my body when i'm dead i'll be dead but my family would and i'm sure they would like it to be respected and you know to me i would love to be cremated and ideally either biodegradable back into the earth or shot shot up into space, man. Send me back. We're made out of stardust already. Send me back to the stars. I think that would be awesome. See, that's where I don't want to be cremated because that's like it takes energy to burn my body's matter and energy. Like I would, I almost feel like, you know, like if my body doesn't go towards science and like they can't experiment with certain parts of my body like i really hope like someone just kind of digs a hole next to a tree and just like rolls my body in there and covers it up because then at least like my body goes back to something okay, yeah, and yeah. it's being used to maybe give nutrients to all the things that live around where my body's buried so maybe i'll, I'll change mine yeah because that's a good deal because if you're you know what was it 1400 to 1800 degrees fahrenheit that's a lot of energy so just shoot my body straight into space no cremation just straight into space there you go. but I, I think i like read something about where you could literally you get turned into compost and they plant a tree because i think one of the biggest things when it comes to death is people want something to remember I'm, I just can't get behind going to like a cemetery and looking at a plot of land and saying, oh, that's my mom, that's my dad, that's my grandma, that's my grandpa. It's okay for people who do. That's their way of dealing with death. But to me, like, you know, I think you said it, it's like more of it. It's about the conscience of this is the way I'm going to remember this person. And I don't want to remember them as this plot of land. I'm going to remember them as who they were in life and not who they are in death. But when it comes to for my personal beliefs coming to like laughing about the story. I think it would be healthy for Jim and his family to be able to laugh about it. I think, you know, looking at his mom's ashes, as I mentioned, every time and thinking this is an ugly thing that happens is probably not the most healthy way of dealing with death. I, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a death expert, so I could be completely wrong on that. But I think they need to get to a point where it's just like, you know what? They don't need to laugh at it like it's hilarious, but just saying, you know, it's kind of funny that, you know, mom, she just got blown up by the U.S. government. And maybe, (laughs) I don't, maybe she was a a firecracker in real life and they're like, hey, you know, look at mom. She was just, she was the bomb in real life and she was a bomb in the afterlife. Yeah, exactly. I think, so have you, have you lost anyone that you're really close with like in your adult life like i've i've i lost a grandma when i was like in the fourth grade so i don't really count that because i was just so young and i didn't have a grasp on the real world quite yet i remember going to my grandma's funeral and crying but i think i mostly did that because everyone else around me was crying but i I think i mean i understood the concept of saying goodbye to my grandma and like knowing that i would never 
be able to see her and talk to her again. But I've only had one real close death in my adult life. It was a, a childhood friend of mine that died like four years ago now. I didn't I, I really didn't know how I would deal with it. And obviously like right after it happens, there's a lot of grief um and a lot of processing that needs to happen. But I'm at the point now where yeah, when I think about it, it makes me sad. But just like you, I'm at a point where if I can't joke about it with our mutual friends and like laugh at the good times, laugh at the bad times, honor all the good qualities of my friend, even if he, even if he were alive, we would shit talk the bad qualities of my friend. <laughs> and I don't think that diminishes talking like everyone says you can't talk bad about the dead. And like my friend is yes, he's dead, but if he were here, we would make fun of his worst qualities. I would expect him to make fun of my worst qualities. And so like to me, that's honoring who he who he is and who he was. Yeah, no, I th- I think that's a good question. And like for in my personal experience, like I had a lot. I went to a lot of funerals when I was really young, and I think I mean I went to two, three in like a summer span or something. So like death was like very common when I was young. But like as you said, I didn't really understand the complete justification of what death was, and this person's never coming back. So maybe you know to answer your question, I haven't lost too many people in my adult life. I um, lost a good friend from Africa a year or so back. You know, his birthday's coming up this weekend, actually. And, you know, that was tough. That was tough because this is a guy who, you know, I traveled to another country all by myself. This was my first time out of the U.S. And he was like, he took me under his wing and he was like super supportive for the, the time I was in Africa. So it was like, you know, really tough to lose him well before his time. But like, I don't know, it sounds it sounds horrible, but I wasn't as affected or impacted by it as somebody who loses a close friend might be. You know, I I took it in stride. Obviously, it was a rough, you know, like rough few days when I heard from his family. And I was like, oh, shit, man, that's that sucks because, you know, I've been working on getting back to Africa with other uh, ventures and opportunities. And I was excited to bring him on board on some project. Uh, so it was like tough to be like, you know what? We're not going to be able to have those moments in the future. But I was like, you know what? We had a lot of really good moments together and death happens. I think that's the biggest thing is death is something that happens. You can't prevent it. It's eventually going to get you. And, you know, just part of accepting what life gives you and understanding how do I move forward from this? How do I become a better person because of this person, I think was, you know, kind of what I learned from losing that good friend uh, in adulthood. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of my feelings on that as far as, you know, I haven't lost a mother. I haven't lost a father. I haven't lost an aunt or an uncle yet. You know, knock on wood on that one. Uh, So I don't know. My, I may feel completely different in those moments when you lose someone that is vital and really close to you. That's been a major part of your life for your whole life. But yeah, I guess, (laughs) I guess I'll just have to wait and see. Totally. That makes me think, so like, I mean, we haven't known each other for too long, but Mm -hmm. every time I've been able to have a conversation with you, I feel, well, one, I feel sort of rejuvenated because I think you're a super open-minded guy. So that's really helpful for me because it's weird because when, when I, when I sort of headbutt with people, it always feels like to me that they've been sort of conditioned to like social norms. And that's why they can't see past the paradigm of quote unquote normal life. Um, so it's always nice t- 
for me, when I get to talk to people that, you know, even if they don't agree with me, they can at least kind of see outside the box and they say like, okay, I can see where you're coming from. Maybe I just sort of have a different angle on it. So that's really nice. So when, hearing you talk about that, that made me think like, okay, Adam is, even when it comes to death, sort of outside the box of maybe someone that's un quote unquote normal. Have you thought about death a lot? Like weirdly, yes. I mean, you know, we can obviously go into a little bit about religion and after death. Uh, but a part of when I started questioning faith, you know, I didn't grow up like super religious, so it wasn't like a huge journey. Uh, but that was one of the questions I started asking all of these different leaders that I went to talk to about faith is like, you know, how do you guys deal with death? What's the afterlife for you? And, you know, I think for like a year or two, I like solidly questioned death. And I was like, you know, what's going to happen? What's, you know, what's that after point? And I weirdly became comfortable with it. I feel like I'm very comfortable with death. Like I said, you know, I know what's going to happen. So I know, you know, I'm just going to live my life to the fullest. I think, you know, that's something I've been realizing, you know, the last time we talked, I was just going and getting out of burnout and kind of having new realizations on life. And one of them was like, I just got to live, man, each day, like, this is the best day ever. And I think that's completely changed my mindset. You know, I probably thought differently of death back then to where I do today, even like a year ago. But for the fact, like, I'm comfortable with death. It's going to come to me one day. I hope it's old age in my sleep. You know, I don't want to die in a horrific way in a year from now or something when I have my whole life in front of me. But as far as death, yeah, I'm I'm very comfortable with it. And I think it's a normal part of human life. It's going to happen. So might as well not fear it. Yeah, that's really interesting because I my sort of interface with death kind of has the same roots where obviously I, I grew up in a very religious household. And so when you go to church, you're eventually going to talk about death because so much of, well, at least Christianity is about what happens after you die. There's sort of a, a reward system built in to that religion. I'm, I'm talking about Christianity like no one knows about it. <laughs> <laughs> what is this but, thing? <laughs> uh, it's a thing. It's a thing. Um, so, like, I kind of had the same thing too, where being introduced to dying so early in my life, like you begin to think about what that means. And even for me at a young age, I would try to, like when someone hands you a concept like that, they don't disentangle all the variables for you. Like they just hand it to you like it, as a ball of yarn. And so like where my mind goes is like, okay, like how do I begin to look at each of these threads differently? And so to like kind of think about death that way. And then I think for me, a religious upbringing and having to deal with the concept of death made me really afraid of death actually, which is bizarre because I feel like if you are religious and you truly believe that, like the second life is what you're looking forward to, actually. And so to be so afraid of dying in my first life, it's 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 a weird contradiction. But I was definitely super afraid of dying. And then even though like at a certain point in my life, I fully believed that I was going to give a second chance, hopefully in paradise and not in a burning inferno. Um, <laughs> that's sort of what I was hoping for. But then when I started leaving religion, I sort of had to revisit that conversation of death and reconcile like, okay, so there's no heaven. What am I looking forward to? What am I going to do? How do I deal with death? Again, like I think a lot of times, and that's why I don't, I don't blame, a lot of times I just don't blame people because they're conditioned and they're stuck in this box and they have to think a certain way unless you really begin to, unless you really make an effort to break out of that box, which I, I think I always try to do. And so, I think early on when I was leaving religion, death became 
really scary again. But then you learn about different things and people kind of coach you. And so like one of the lessons that I learned that brought me the most comfort is people really only look at death. They only look at one half of death. So like you live and then you die. And then I don't know what happens. It's just darkness. It's just nothingness. People are afraid of that half of death, but people never look at the first half of darkness and nothingness before you were born. That is the same as death. Um, but no one's afraid of that. And actually, like if you do believe time is linear, because that's how humans sort of interface time, the amount of time, the amount of darkness, the amount of nothingness in a death sense that happened before you were born, like that's actually a lot more nothingness than when you die and then you start the timer and it's like, oh, he's been dead for three years, four years, five years. Like we're talking about billions of years, but no one is afraid of that vast set of darkness. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you're now an atheist, right? Yes. Okay. So uh, if you don't mind, like, would you share how you came to those beliefs? Obviously, you shared a little bit about your background there. And yeah, life after death. What is life after death for you? Yeah. So that it was definitely a long journey. So I was born into the Seventh-day Adventist religion, which is a pretty young spinoff of Christianity. Um, it started in the United States. I know, And I don't know, like I know I was born into it. I don't know how how my mother got into it, and that's who brought me to church. Um, and so, for 21 years of my life, it was a really core tenet to like the things that I believed in. Um, I remember in middle school and kind of going into high school, I was religious to the point where you know I would wake up and the first thing that I would do was pray and spend five minutes with God. I would pray before every meal if I had time. Like. At recess at school, I would spend time with myself and pray, pray before, like literally like sort of textbook style, like on my knees at my at the foot of my bed before I would go to bed. Like I was that person. <laughs> and then like, you know, at a certain point, you again, I'm actually still pretty amazed that I was able to break out of that paradigm. Like I had every opportunity to be in, indoctrinated to the point where I would never be able to leave that line of thinking. Um, so I don't know what nudged me. I think like I was saying earlier, even at a young age, when someone hands you handed me a concept and all the variables were tangled together, I just felt like it was my job to untangle that ball of yarn. So I started doing that with religion when I entered college because I don't know, like I took college very seriously and it sort of woke me up to the world and I started thinking about society and sort of philosophy and all of those things. And so I had more questions. I had questions when I was in grade school. I remember going to a youth group meeting. One week we talked about humility. And then the very next week we talked about heaven. And our youth group leaders said that when you go to heaven, everyone gets their own mansion and the raves, the roads are paved with gold. And I just remember thinking back just a week ago, you guys taught us about humility. Like, why would everyone need a mansion? Why would mm, we need yeah. roads paved with gold? They weren't able to answer some of these questions. So I think that those that collection of Going to my leaders and having them not be able to answer questions properly stuck with me. So like when I was 19, 20, 21, 22, that all sort of resurfaced. And I I think another variable is I was just sick of going to church. I've been doing it for, I've been sacrificing my Saturday mornings and afternoons for 21 <laughs> years of my life. And so I really uh -huh. had to evaluate like if this is worth it to me, I should really know why I'm going to church and investing all this time and energy and thought and bandwidth into. And so 
I started going to three different churches. I started asking more questions. And it just seemed like the more questions I asked, the more people that I talked to, it made less sense. It just seemed like people were making it up as we were going. And so I was getting more confused. I was getting pretty frustrated at that point, actually. Like, And then somebody introduced me to more scientific books um, and scientific authors like Richard Dawkins uh, was really sort of my entrance into atheism. I would read those books and they would make so much sense to me. And so then I went through a really sort of tumultuous two-year period where I was just so angry at religion in the church. Like I just remember waking up and the first thing I would do was post some really sort of hateful thing about religion on Facebook. And I was just like, ah, that feels great. And now I can go on with my day. This is like age 21, 22, 23. I'm at a a much more comfortable and balanced state now where I feel like I can still go to the church that I was raised in because despite all my, I don't know, the, the disagreements that I have with the logic of God and maybe some of the tenets of church or some of the lessons that are in the Bible, like it still is, there still is a sense of community. And so like going to church and seeing people that help raise me every Saturday, like I still very much enjoy that. So I'll, at least I can balance, like if we were having a sort of philosophical and logical conversation about God and religion and what that all means, I think I'm equipped where I can disagree with people, but leave like not angry. I think that's a good point that you brought up about like religion being this community and people being indoctrined into these beliefs, because a lot of the time people join a religion, I would say for one of two reasons, to either be a part of a community or to get answers to questions that they don't know how to answer themselves. And I think that's the biggest thing. When you have this community, you feel like you belong, and then they start talking about death, and this is death, and specifically for Christianity, this is heaven and hell. In the back of your mind, you're like, well, I could either accept these beliefs or be an outcast from this group that I've been involved with for, in your case, 21 years. And a lot of people tend to be like, you know, we've talked about it before, people tend to follow love. They're gonna go where they feel like they're a part of a community. Um, And it's kind of interesting we kind of have a different growing up religion story but we kind of have come to the same realization you know i grew up maybe we went to church every once a month or something but once my parents were like these these kids don't like it we're not going to do it anymore i think my dad was christian and my mom was lutheran i don't I never went to like church camp or Sunday school or any of that. But as of now, you know, you're an atheist. I'm agnostic. I believe there's something greater out there. I just don't believe it's been defined yet. I think, you know, every day we kind of move closer because you see all these interwoven similarities in the different varying religions. Uh, But like, as I was saying that... As I started to get more independent and question what faith was, like literally I started questioning faith because of the Grimm's fairy tale book. Like I looked at this book and I was like, if we went back 2000 years ago and Jesus was using this book and his followers and their followers created this book, we would be using this book as the Bible, you know, not to... Um, attack any religious people, but the Bible is a book of fairy tales. It's about telling stories, using fairy tales to tell a message. Like, hey, be a good person, but we're going to have a very fun, creative story built around it. So when I looked at the Grimm's fairy tales, like, well, this could have just been the Bible. But yeah, as I was saying, I started like, you know, literally going to reaching out online, going to churches in my area, talking about just different leaders and saying, you know, why do you believe in what you believe in? And I never found something that was that I was like, fuck yeah, that makes sense. 
But speaking of the afterlife, I do very much like the idea of reincarnation. That's very popular among many Indian religions. But as far as my own personal beliefs, I think you nailed it. Life after death is the same as life before birth. It's just an idea of nothingness. Um, you know, how do we define something? I don't remember life before birth. So I know, and I'm someone who very much believes in souls, um, specifically old souls. So I do believe in some cases, in essence or idea, I mean, once again, something you can't explain is passed on to another form, whether that be a human, whether that be an animal, whether that be whatever, to help create the idea of someone being an old soul. Obviously, explaining a spiritual plane is scientifically impossible. At our current time, hence why I find, you know, hence why I fall into more of a agnostic belief. But there are, I believe, there are happenstances that are going on in our world that have been, that have yet to be explained by science. Once they do, once they are explained by science, I will change my tune. But for the time being, as, and I mean, really, like I said, as the basic idea of religion goes, I'm going to explain the unknown in a spiritual sense. So yeah, when it comes to life after death, I think a lot of people are very afraid of the afterlife. Um, obviously, you mentioned it's like either in Christianity, it's either heaven or hell. If you're not a good enough person, you're going to be in this inferno and constantly be tortured. And so they start to fear it. And, you know, I think people, they're doing this race for what the average life expectancy is like 75, 80 years. They're doing this 80 year race and they have no idea what's across the finish line. And I think that scares a lot of people and that's okay. But to me, I just think it's nothingness. I think we cease to exist. I think, you know, if your soul is passed on to another form of life, a little essence of it is, um, but yeah, it's yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna reinforce one of your points, and then I'm gonna not necessarily challenge you on another Definitely, one, but I'm gonna it. bring up a conversation around it. But I totally agree because I know when I was going through that phase where I was visiting multiple churches and asking questions of church leaders, they would always refer to the Bible. They would say, "Well, all of this is true because it's written in a book." And I would bring up like, "Yeah, well, a lot of things are written in a book. Like if we were born." And all the adults around us gave us Lord of the Rings and said, like, this is the one truth and like reinforced and indoctrinated us that this book holds all the truths. Like we would think like Frodo Baggins is our God, you know? And so like to, for them to say like, this book was written 2000 years ago and like, we just know that these things are true. Like it, that just didn't sit well with me. Cause like, I was like, you can pick any book and say that about any book. And so I don't know. I had, a, I had a difficult time with that. So I'm glad that you sort of touched on that point. Well, just, um, do you mind if I get a little clarification in there? Oh, please. I do, yes, I yes, do, yes, yes, yes. I mean, this is the day after Easter after all. I do believe Jesus was a real person. <laughs> I just, yes, I, just, I like, do too. I, um, the reason I do, because weirdly I was listening to last podcast on the left and they were talking about Mormonism and you talk about, you know, the prophet of Mormonism. I can't remember his name, John Smith. And I was like, this sounds exactly what Jesus would be in modern times. So I definitely, I do believe Jesus is a real person. I believe a lot of those ideas of the Christian religion. I believe Muhammad was a real person. I believe all these prophets were real people. It's just the big guy up top. I don't know about him or her. Or it. Uh, I I always say it's him because I would I would really make the females at my church angry because I would always say God is a guy because I don't think any female that has is all knowing and all powerful can mess up the universe this bad. 
So I'm convinced it's a guy. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, there are there are truths in the Bible. And so I'm glad that you clarified because people definitely could have taken what I said and thought like, oh, what, what you think this is all fiction? And no, I don't. I think I think there was a person named Jesus who was super rad and had really great ideas. Really great hair. Um, I remember going to, <laughs> yeah, really great hair. Yeah, a great tan, a great beard before it was he even He wasn't cool. a white guy though. Just want to make, he wasn't a white guy. That's right. <laughs> This was That's in the right. East. That's right. Um, and so I remember asking um, my youth pastor, the the pastor that headed our church, like, is it possible for me to hate God but love Jesus? Because when I read the Old Testament, I read stories about a guy that is super petty. He's jealous. He takes it out on other people. But then when I read stories about Jesus, it's a guy that is selfless. All he cares about is helping other people. So, I would ask people, I think I asked five different pastors in like a three-month period, and four of the pastors said, that's impossible. And one of them was like, well, maybe, you know, so no one, no one fully agreed with me. And so, I was just like, I don't know. I just, I just, I, even to this day, like the idea of God, he's definitely not all loving. Maybe he is those other things, but it's, to me, he's definitely not all loving. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you clarified on all of those things. Well, even like more clarification is, I don't know if you're a comic book nerd, but Dr. Doom, right? So Dr. Doom goes to Wakanda. He's in the Black Panther state. And I, I believe it's like a White Panther comes to him and tells him, this is the reason why Dr. Doom is a villain, is this White Panther tells him that you are going to be the one. I've looked at all the different timelines of the world and the one where you are the leader is the one where Earth survives, the one where the best things happen in life. And now you're looking at Dr. Doom, who's, you know, talked about as a villain. And you're like, well, how can this villain be the best person to run the world? When people talk about God being all knowing and, you know, why are like, why do we have cancer? Why are we in the middle of a quarantine for COVID-19? Why do young kids die? It sounds horrible, but if there was a God, I'm not saying there is, I'm not saying there isn't, at least in my beliefs, maybe there's a bigger picture here that we can't even comprehend. Maybe these things need to happen to get to the ultimate idea of Dr. Doom being the perfect leader for our world and our universe. So I, that, that, a little more clarification on my stance there, but I, I definitely understand kind of your thought points on that. I, oh man, I didn't know that about Dr. Doom. That's really interesting because one of the sort of jokes that my friends and I always have when we get into religious conversations is I always, when I bring this up about how I think the, the Christian God, at least Yahweh, is like this big jerk. Like people are like, yeah, but like you don't want to go to hell. And so I'm like, well, I don't know yet because like the Bible is from like one side of the story. If I want to be like an objective arbiter, I would also have to read Lucifer's side of the story too. And that book doesn't exist. Well, I guess if you're a Satanist, like maybe it does exist, but like we treat that as like such a joke. If if it's true that the devil is trying to build an army to fight God's army one day. Like, why would he torture and kill his his army? And so, like, I'm just thinking, like, he probably treats his people the same way that God treats his people. So, it really just depends. Like, if you were trying to be an objective judge and you there's two sides of the story, you would want to listen to both sides, not just one, and then pick that side because that was the first story to come to you. And so, like, to hear that story about Dr. Doom made me really think about, like, if I wanted to be fair, I would want to listen to Yahweh's side and Lucifer's side. Well, yeah, and to add on to your point, like you think about kids in Iraq growing up, big old bad USA is coming in and, you know, fucking over our people and that whole 
Middle Eastern situation. It's like, we think we're the good guys. Or even, I guess the best example is Vietnam. We thought we were the good guys, but a lot of people in Vietnam probably did not. So yeah, it's, I think it's super important that we see both sides of these stories. And funny enough, the church of um, the satanic church is actually like, if you look into it, I, I asked my listeners to look into like the belief systems of the satanic church. It's a lot of very like good ideas. Like they just became a... Um, uh, they just got their tax exemption pretty recently. But if you look into the ideas of the Church of Satan, <laughs> like it's it's not what you think it would be. There are a lot of very good ideals that are just basically just be good to people. I believe it, man. I, I always tell people too, like it's probably going to be like a, a much ratter party too. Like there's going to be some bad apples. Like if Hitler shows up, like it's going to suck a little bit. <laughs> but like I'm sure Heaven's Party has some bad H- apples Hitler's too. Hitler's not even, he's way below hell. There's even a worse hell. Nice, a hell, a hell's hell. <laughs> but I did want to like ask you about one thing because like, yeah. I know you're saying you're an agnostic, and I I find that once we define different levels of non-belief, like a lot of times people are actually on the same page. Where I say I'm an atheist, you say you're an agnostic, and to me it's, it's just semantics. Because even like if we if we put things on a scale of one to ten, and ten is I know there's no God. And I know everything in the Bible is BS. Like I would say I'm a nine. I can't say with a hundred percent certainty that there is no God. Like you said, there are, there are things that we haven't captured through science due to limitations of technology or whatever, but I'm fairly sure. And like, or fairly sure with all the evidence that we currently have. Yes. And so I would never, I would never throw out the idea that, you know, like you said, if one day science looks through some crazy telescope and they're like, oh my God, there is a guy that's floating above the universe and like pulls the strings and dictates things. I'd be like, oh God, I was wrong this whole time. And my apology campaign would need to begin at that point. So like, if we put it on a number scale like that, are you, even I'm not a 10, but like at what number, so if I'm a nine, at what number are you an agnostic? And at what number are you an atheist? Because to some people, 10 is atheism and like starting at nine you're actually an agnostic because at that point i'm saying if we define it that way i still think there's a chance that there a god could exist but i still call myself an atheist no that's that's like a very good way of thinking about it so putting it on a number scale how i would see it so if if um i heard you correctly like 10 is you believe in Jesus or you believe in a God and zero would be absolutely not, right? Yeah, yeah I, had a, I had it flipped around, but I know, yeah, exactly. Like one extreme and okay, the other. Okay, so yeah, so I would have a religious person at a nine um, because, you know, obviously they're very, you know, indoctrined into this belief, but, you know, there's a chance that sometimes they question those beliefs. And I would put an atheist at a one, where is, you know, there's no belief or there's no ideal belief you know there's a very limited belief but as you said if something happens if we find out we're in you know what was in men in black we're just in this you know universe and on a cat's collar so they're they're open but they're very not as religious i would put an agnostic right in the middle at five um so that's kind of how i see it but it's interesting to see how you see it as an atheist and seeing how we're a lot closer than that difference totally yeah and so i think that's where people get caught up is like oh you're an atheist like then then you're you must be extreme where when i heard you talk about that you're an agnostic and when you sort of defined through your story what that means to you i was just thinking like well i'm the same way actually 
but I just use a different label. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I guess I tend to think of it as atheists are, you know, not strictly is the wrong word, but I can't think of something better, but they're science based, whereas a religious person would be faith based and an agnostic would be right in the middle, like 50, 50 science, 50, 50 uh, faith. So that's kind of how I see it. Uh, but yeah, I think your your thoughts there definitely have kind of swayed how I would see it moving forward. Yeah, totally. Should we get back to the main story? Yeah, let's get back to death. <laughs> uh, so I want to talk, you know, this is kind of getting back to, and I love that conversation, but like we could have gone on forever yeah, for thank it. You, but man. I want to talk about like, you know, we talked about obviously religion and this fear of death, you're either heaven or hell, specifically in Western society, specifically the US, because we can't speak to Canada or, you know, Mexico or South America. Why do you think there's such an out? negative outlook on death or do you believe I'm wrong in that presumption? Yeah, I don't know. I think we have to unpack what you mean by negative a little bit more. I think, you know, there's a lot of different emotions that can be... Or grim or... Yeah, right, right. And that's what I was going to get to too. Yeah, like it's, it's... I think people are scared. I think rightfully so. You know, the unknown is always scary. And we kind of talked about this a little bit too. Like we just don't know what happens when you die. That's why I think too, like... You know, even though if you grew up religious, you're taught that there's this beautiful second life, what should be a beautiful second life waiting for you. But even when I talk to religious people, they're still really scared. And so that made me think like, oh, do they actually believe the second life is coming? Or, you know, when I when I put a more human lens on it, of course, they're scared. I'm more like you where, you know, I've thought about this and... At a certain point, I have to laugh about death. Even like one of my close friends dying, I have to joke about it. I have to laugh about it. Otherwise, you know, it's just you're just gonna go crazy a little bit. Even though death can be a punchline, when there are still moments, I'm not every day confident about death. There are still moments where it scares me a little bit, and that's where I sort of think back to some of the lessons that I've been coached. Like, okay, well, how come you're not scared of death? before life. If we're going to call the darkness before you were born and after you die, if we just call, I'm just going to call it death in quotes to make it simple, but like, how come you're not scared of that phase of your quote unquote life? And I have to sort of rethink about the logic. That's where like science and logic really helps me because if I sit in like an emotional state and I think about things from an emotional perspective, then because death is, can be so scary, then all these, like you said, quote unquote, negative emotions start to come up, fear, grief, and just anxiety. I think, again, when, it, when we talked about my religious journey, once science and logic and facts got injected into that story, that's where I found comfort. And that's where I find comfort with death. You know, finding comfort in death is so important. Like to your point, it's like, I don't want to die. <laughs> like, I don't want to go outside and die. I don't want to get, you know, get a disease and die. That doesn't mean I'm afraid of that day coming. I know it's coming, but that does not mean I want to die tomorrow. And speaking to the fact why, you know, I personally believe the U.S. is so has such a grim outlook on death is, I mean, I guess to kind of orate my thoughts, orate, by the way, word of my day, I'm going to, I want to compare death to sex. So stick with me here, man. Uh, (laughs) So as we talked about in our sex education episode with Sam Walsh that just came out a few weeks ago, there was a time in American history where we all lived in single family houses. Uh, The parents were having sex with other people in the room, or not with other people, but while other people were in the room. And sex wasn't such a risque topic of conversation. 
The same with death. Back in the day, before death became a multi-billion dollar industry, uh, let me see here. Reports say the U.S. death industry will reach revenues of $68 billion by 2023. That's just the U.S. But anyways, families had to deal with their own deceased family members. That meant everything from cleaning the body, dressing them, building a coffin, digging a six-foot hole, which, fun fact, during our quarantine times here, uh, the reason we have a six-foot deep hole is because medical practitioners in 1665, following the the tail end of the bubonic plague, believed disease couldn't be spread by the dead, and hence, burying the body six feet deep would be a way of slowing stopping the disease from spreading. So a little fun fact for you there. Um, but to continue on my point, families are digging the six-foot deep hole, having their own funerals, etc., etc., with death. So dealing with death was such a common part of life. You know, people die. FYI, listeners, death happens to everyone as we've been talking. Let me get this quote right. The most beautiful way I've read about death is from the uh, Kurawai people of Western or West Papua, uh, Indonesia, who often speak of themselves as being in the process of dying and children being seen as their body replacement. I love the fact that we are, we're, you know, our cells are building and we're eventually those cells are going to die. We are right now, as we're speaking, men, in the process of dying. Hopefully it's very far in the future, but we are dying right now. And then the structure of the U.S. healthcare, as we've been seeing in everyday life, has monetized death. If as a hospital or a doctor, I can't extend your life past your natural dying point, I failed, I think is a horrible way to look at death. But also, I just want to make it very clear, as I mentioned also in that episode with Chris, there are deaths where people die young, kids die, that's horrible, and you never wish uh, that upon someone to die before their time. But for old age death, and to end my oration, hopefully I'm using the word of the day correctly, um, be happy for life that has been lived. Don't muddy its remembrance by the darkness of death. And that's where I think the U.S. gets it wrong is that we've monetized death, and if we can't stop someone from dying, we've failed. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to sort of tee up this next section of the conversation. I agree with you. I agree with everything that you're saying. I definitely feel like I'm dying. Like, I know my hairline is dying. I, as I get older, like, I know that my knees and my joints are Worst dying. time to take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, when you say, like, yeah, we're all dying, we just have to realize it. Like, there are definitely times where I can feel parts of my body dying as I get older. But that that made, that made me really think too, and like sort of tying it back to the the original story, monetizing death, and like to to monetize something, you really have to put like certain objects in place. And so, like when I read this story too, like it made me really think about who owns. So the so Jim and his family, and the mother's name is Doris. I don't know if we've um, Doris, yep. established that yet, but who owns Doris's body? We we would think if Doris was alive. We would say Doris owns Doris's body, but the fact that she's dead for some arbitrary reason, and I don't know, like we're just conditioned this way, like society has made us think this way, but like all of a sudden Doris doesn't own Doris's body because she's not with us. So then like the conversation becomes who does? I think a lot of us would default to, well, obviously her family owns her body, but that made me really think about like who, what is 
Doris and then who owns her body when this happens. That's a very good thought to bring up. You know, we had a similar kind of conversation in an episode with Angie Krause titled Life where somebody, a young son had died and their family wanted to take his uh, sperm to create a new life, to create someone to maybe fill in that hole that losing her son has. But it is like who owns that body after death? Who owns you after death? Yeah, I think I think it is, you know, to answer that question from my perspective, I think the bo- the family does own that body. Um, you know, I think that's why it's important to have a will and have an after death plan in place. Mine just happens to be happens to be audio. So if I die and I'm married to Selena Gomez uh, later yeah, in life, Selena, Selena, my all my information on what I want to happen after death is in this podcast <laughs> with men. I want to get shot in the space. She probably has enough money to shoot me into space, so I'm not too worried. But I think in this case, to answer your question, Min, Jim had given the body to BRC. The big issue was they just never told him what they were going to do with the body. And then later, he found out through an investigation by Reuters, which, by the way, listeners, Reuters, such a good source of uh, information. But Reuters was able to find out that her body was used for this blast testing. Uh, so hopefully, I don't know if that clears kind of that up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it does. I, I don't think there. I don't think that's a question where we can land on a really hard conclusion either. It's just like, what is what? Mm-hmm. which way do you lean? Which way does this other person lean? I'm glad that you brought up your conversation with Angie because I listened to that episode and... And it was cool to listen to you talk about your perspective on it. And then I think on that particular story, Angie had a very different viewpoint on who gets to control that person's sperm. Like, because it, you guys were talking about, it sounded like some people interpreted his desire to want children. And then some people took it as like, well, we have to continue the lineage of that person. But he actually, it sounded like he actually never said that point. He's just like, he was just enthusiastic about maybe someday having children. There was never like a conversation about like, well, I need to continue my gene. He just thought like children and life was beautiful. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I'm, and I don't, I didn't ask that question expecting a hard conclusion because it's really philosophical. It's really different. There's a bunch of intersections that you have to consider. Like, like I'm glad that you, you're open-minded enough to bring up that, you know, if you were born and raised in the West, you're probably going to, and not even, not just the West, like different areas of the West too. Like it, you might have a very different perspective on death and then how to honor someone's life in death and all of that. So, it's, it's really complicated, man. I, I don't know what the laws say about when someone dies, like who has ownership of that person's body. I'm sure like the person's will has a lot to do with it, but it's, it's a, it's a really tough conversation because it's never been, it's, I mean, like I said, there's probably legal language around it, but legal language to me is like a human construct. Like there's no intrinsic universal Mm -hmm. rule about this. Like to me, like I was saying earlier, like when I die, hopefully even in death, my body is able to give something back to the earth that gave so much to me. So like, like I was saying, just roll me into, (laughs) into next to a tree, into a (laughs) hole and hopefully like, you know, like bugs eat my body. And then like, you know, like that sort of goes through the cycle of life and I'm able to give back in a certain way. But I don't think there's like a, the universe has a law around how our bodies and death are should be treated no I, i'm glad i'm glad you clarified that point because yeah i definitely took it as just you asking about like what happens from a humis humanity standpoint and legal standpoint but the fact that you talked about like what actually happens to our bodies from a 
philosophical and who owns that, I think, you know, really brings it up. Because, yeah, like I think from a human and legal standpoint, obviously you have the option to do wills. You have the option to do audio wills like we're doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> and then also kind of to end the story, the option of donating your organs. You know, uh, Min, can I ask you if you're an organ donor? I don't know. I mean, I guess I could dig up my driver's license and see. Um, I hope I am. Regardless of if you officially are or aren't, like, why do you believe people should or shouldn't be organ donors? Yeah, I mean, the the reason that I've heard people say that they are against donating organs is because, like, it ruins the body, like, in the afterlife, and it ruins the memory of that person. But, again, because I don't have that perspective, and I want my body to provide the most utility possible in life or in death, I hope that um, I am an organ donor and people are protected legally that when I die, um, they can do with my body to advance something. I had uh, read the story from Am I the Asshole on Reddit, and it was about this guy who his friend had asked him for his kidney. And because he was going through kidney failure, fi- failure, and the friend said no. And I was like thinking about it. And then obviously the story comes up and I'm like, I am an organ donor, but I would not give my kidney. I mean, I, I might give it to a friend, a family member, but I would not give my kidney if I was alive to a complete stranger. Even if that means that person would die. If I could save that person's life by giving my kidney and there were a stranger, I would say no. I'm not responsible for that person's life. There are thousands and thousands and millions and millions of people that are probably a match to him. Like, why would I be responsible for his death when there's another million people that could have been given them their kidney? The reason I say that is because I think the reason people want to hold on to their kidneys is like, I very much want a family later in life. And I don't want to get to a place where I'm like, oh shit, my son or my daughter needs a kidney. And I gave it away to this complete stranger. I hold my family and my friends and more worth than a complete stranger. And you know what? If people hate me for that, go ahead. But like when it comes to organ donation, I think at the end of the day, I understand like people's stances on you know, specifically religion related on wanting to keep the body pure. But kind of the big idea what we've been talking about is when I die, I don't care what you do with my body. If my kidneys, my liver, my heart can go to someone in need to save their life after I'm dead, I'm fine with that. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're honest about that too, because that is a conversation that is so easy to be dishonest about, because think about the percentage chance that some stranger is going to come to you and be like, Adam, can I have your kidney, please? And so you can cross that bridge later. So it's actually Man, I, a lot. I told I told my audience multiple times that I would sell my mom for a billion dollars. <laughs> it's right. all about honesty here. All about honesty. <laughs> That's right. I did hear that. And so like, it's like if you took a calculated step, it would be to your advantage to say, yeah, I, I'm generous that way. Like I would donate my kidney if someone in need actually needed it. And then when the time comes, the very small percentage chance that the the occurrence comes to you, at that point, you can be like, no, I don't want to give you my kidney. I don't even know you, dude. Like I'm going to save it for maybe like a family member that needs it. And so I think people need to be more honest about that. Like, yes, like we would hope that everyone is generous enough where if you don't need a kidney and someone else really needed your kidney, that like, you would be able to give it to them. But we all have these weird psychological barriers. And so I think I'm in the same position as you is like, 
I don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. What if I do need that kidney and I gave it to somebody? And so it's, it's just too easy to be a virtuous person in theory. And like, I always think about like when people ask you like, oh, like if you had, if you had $2 billion, like what would your life be like? And I always try to act like the humble person and say like, I don't think my life would change that much. Like, yeah, maybe I would buy my parents a nicer home. Maybe I would upgrade my car, but I think I would live like the same life. It's too easy to say that. I really don't know if I had $2 billion, like who knows what type of person I would become. Yeah, no, I think I just interviewed a formal, formal, um, federal agent and now he's a police or now he's a private investigator and that that episode will come out before this episode but min you don't know about that person and he was talking about how he would sometimes go to drug buys and they would offer him like yo here's thirty thousand dollars so then when he got to court the judge was like well would you have taken that and then the judge was like would you have taken three hundred thousand would you have taken three million would you have taken three hundred million and he's like if you're not thinking about it and you're not considering taking it you're lying to yourself. Yeah. Like, yeah, of course. Like when it comes to selling my mom for a billion dollars, first off, people don't realize how much a billion dollars is. It's an exorbitant amount of money. It's insane. I could lose a hundred million dollars and still have ninety million dollars. It's insane. I've asked I've asked every single person, would you sell your mom or your your dad for a billion dollars? And they're like, no, 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 no. And it's like, if you're not even thinking about it, you're lying to yourself. Right. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> and before we move on, like, I, I think we should, because like, we were being very phil- philosophical about this conversation too. And before mm-hmm. we move away from the story, let's put ourselves in the average everyday person's shoes and with all the weird social norms that we are conditioned to operate in when we talk about our gym and his family being sensitive to what happened to doris's body if i put myself in that position it's very easy for me to say like well no they should be upset like it's their mom's body and i totally can view it from that position but like i'm i'm happy to have this conversation with someone like you where not only can we say like we sympathize with the family and what they're going through but like do we have to look at it that way like that's the thought experiment that's really interesting to me i'm glad you brought that up because yeah it is it is this is a very upsetting situation for jim and the stoffer family to be in it is you've they've lost their mother they found out you know later that their mom was blown up by the u.s military that's that's a tough pill to swallow but yeah i think the important thing is it doesn't always have to be that way a part of moving on is letting go and letting go the fact that your mom was was blown up by the u.s military like that's kind of cool right that's kind of like if you really think about it that's kind of cool like yeah like like i said you know Doris, she was a firecracker in real life, and she was a you know IED in the post life. Badass Doris. I would like to welcome to the show for his second appearance, first solo appearance, Min Lee from Quality Under Pressure Podcast, a podcast whose mission is to remind the world that engaging in a conversation is still a beautiful thing. You can listen to Min and Andy's previous appearance on Water Cooler Talk under episode number twenty-seven, titled "Burnout Culture," which will be listed in the description of this episode. You know, I'm glad we haven't gone too much into it because uh, that's not the points of why I'm continuing water cooler talking, doing these remote interviews. Uh, But we are obviously in some interesting times as two podcasters and the many other podcasters that may be listening. What can we do with our shows to help put people at ease in these times of uncertainty? Yeah. Oh man, that's a really good question. I've thought about this too, because I know like I texted you the other day and I realized the water cooler talk activity had picked up since the COVID-19 pandemic caught on here in 
at least more specifically Minnesota in the United States. Um, and so I was just like, that's really cool that you're putting out more episodes. And I know that in one of your first episodes, you talked about how you thought about it and you ultimately decided that your show is not going to revolve around that topic. And so even for my podcast, um, like we use a studio, a dedicated studio at one of, at my part-time job and I, we can't access it anymore. And so um, it's been weird. Like we haven't put out as many episodes as we normally do. And so I was thinking about, okay, if I set up a remote system, what do I want to talk about? And I went the opposite direction where you thought like, oh, we probably there are probably people that want to escape um COVID-19 and like be able to find content that isn't based on that and so I've avoided talking about it um during our conversation too but I thought once I set up a sort of remote system and I can do a few episodes where it's where people are still practicing physical distancing like I really wanted to dive into that sort of create a framework where I ask different people sort of the same set of questions and see what emerges from that are the answers the same where people are like yeah the the social isolation is really getting to me or are we going to have a bunch of different answers pop up and realize like oh this really isn't affecting people the same way and so like even before we started recording you brought up like how the shelter in place like for you has been sort of recentering and like almost like a benefit where for me i'm just like what the hell is going on and i can't find um it's really exposed for me where i need to go out i need to talk to friends over beer um i need to go do uh team sports and without that like how much i get in my own head and i start to like hate myself yeah it's it's I think maybe people need both. People find the content that they need, but it's interesting that we both went different ways with that. I do, overarching, I do believe it's important to talk about the situation we're in. I think people want to know what's going on. I think that's the biggest thing that we've seen kind of at fault with the U.S.'s response to this is people just want to know what's going on and they want to trust the source that is telling them what's going on. And, you know, you have listeners that turn on your podcast, download your podcast that are like, we want to know what's going on and we want and we trust men. We trust Andy. We trust Dean. And we want to know their thoughts on it. We know we trust what they're saying, and I'd rather listen to Quality Under Pressure podcast talk about the situation than turn on a news channel where I don't have as much trust. And then for me, I was like, you know what? You know, as I talked about in that episode you mentioned, um, I can't think of the episode off the top of my head, but it was in the introduction, is to me, I was like, you know what? I've, you know, I listen to a bunch of different political podcasts just to kind of keep up with the political standpoint. And it's just like every everything's talking about this. Everything's talking about there's so much quarantine and pandemic information being thrown at me. I was like, you know, what? I just want some normal. I just want some normal ass content. I want people to do exactly what they've been doing. You know, if your podcast is about talking about um, true crime, I want you to talk about true crime. Um, so I was like, you know, I mentioned like in this time of unnormalcy, I just want to throw in some normal situations. Like there are so many just weird and strange and interesting news stories around the situation. But it's like, you know what? I have like a catalog or a backlog of news stories I've wanted to cover. I think some of these news stories are, you know, a few months old. It's maybe it's time to hit those news stories and have these conversations I've been waiting for the right person to talk about and kind of forcing these old news stories to the front. And yeah, I think it's a good point that you mentioned. It's like, it's both, both of what we're doing is totally fine and it's helping people. And 
I think that's the the biggest thing that you know podcasters and other people in the content creation field can do when these this is the time that people are going to come to you and rely on you to feel good about themselves and feel happy and really release the stress of what we're going through so yeah it's you know everyone's going to take a different take on it and you know I'm glad we're kind of covering both bases just just to clarify what you said when you know saying uh, COVID-19 has been a benefit for me um, (laughs) (laughs) I do I do want to say it it has it's allowed me to really you know take the time to work on projects that you know I've been having to put off and you know focus more on the podcast this becomes more of a full-time gig but it's like you know what I'm able to right now I'm working on repurposing uh, a wooden headboard for a custom podcast table you know I was working before and trying to do the podcast and doing like other creative ventures. I didn't have the time for that. So it's been nice to kind of have the time to do that stuff and then also be more consistent with this podcast. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified because I went over that pretty quickly about how it's a benefit to you. I don't, I definitely don't (laughs) want people to think like you're fist pumping over there. And like I said, (laughs) I'm like, keep going. But like I said to you, you know, on a serious note, like my dad just had surgery and he's at very high risk with that surgery. My mom literally is on the front line working in hospitals. Um, my brother has a young son who was sick at the start of the stay at home order. So there is like serious consequences to what's going on. But, you know, I'm very much trying to focus on the positives that are coming out of this. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, like it, the current situation allowed not that you know it's all rainbows and sunshine on your end but it allowed you to go to things that you really wanted to go to and for me it's created a little more chaos and it life seems a little less therapeutic to me and that's where like when i think about my podcast i really wanted to talk about this like or i was saying you know is this when i talk to you about it it's not affecting us in the same way and i'm just wondering how differently it affects individual A, individual B, individual C. Um, That's really interesting to me. Yeah, because like as you were saying, you're more of a extrovert. I'm like, as I described, an extroverted introvert. Like I'm fine staying at home. I talked about it in the episode with Sam Walsh. Like instead of going to the bars and meeting girls and having sexual relationships, I'm at home playing Skyrim uh, because that's what I enjoy doing. But yeah, I definitely understand, you know, there is an aspect of social life and people having to deal without being able to have a physical social life life. And I think, you know, that's something that Quality Under Pressure podcast, you know, provides to you is like, hey, we can still have these conversations. Um, it sucks that we can't do it in person, but this is something I need to help. Yeah, get totally. This. Uh, listeners, if you're interested in hearing more of the Quality Under Pressure podcast, you can do so by following QUP podcast on Twitter or by going to Quality Under Pressure on Facebook or Instagram. And if you're just falling in love with Min himself, you can follow him on his personal social medias at MinLee2 on the big three social medias, Twitter, Instagram. Instagram and Facebook. Uh, Min, we were originally going to discuss a news story based around the Netflix documentary series Tiger King. Don't don't worry, listeners. Don't worry, Tiger fan or Tiger King fans. This story has been moved to a later episode, but you had yet to see the series. You mentioned you like to focus on content outside of what the world is telling you to watch. So what can you recommend to folks listening to this episode to stream for the following week. Oh man, oh man, I wish I was better equipped. I didn't know this where the conversation was going. <laughs> but definitely, I'm the type of person where if a bunch of people are going one way, my focus tends to go the other way. I don't know if it's a good thing or not because sometimes, like people do, put their focus on something that's like 
that that has substance. But so many times I've been burned where the mass goes towards something and I check it. I'm like, this is stupid. Like, why is everyone liking this? And so um, I've learned to sort of go the other direction. Maybe it's my punk roots that um, <laughs> makes me do that too. Uh, I've been trying to do a lot more Netflix. How many streaming services do you have? Um, th- like that I pay for? Yeah. Just one. Which one? Uh, I just pay for Amazon Prime because oh, nice. obviously I like the aspect of being able to use like Amazon Prime to order stuff. And I also like Amazon Prime Video. Uh, but then, you know, we're sharing Netflix, Hulu, and a few others. And then obviously, you know, I, I will make this very vague so the government can't catch me. But sometimes <laughs> I like to uh, set sails on the open seas and get find my content in treasure chests in the open yes <laughs> i think i totally love that analogy oh man you are the captain now oh uh, yeah so i only have netflix for a paid subscription i don't know it just doesn't like i i'm not going to make it through all the netflix content like i can't i can't justify again like that the logic portion of my mind says like wait you're gonna pay for this one streaming service like it would be one thing if i made it through all the relevant content on netflix and i'd be like well i need to move on to a second thing to open up a different library but i watch like i don't know when i have a busy month on netflix like four movies a month maybe it's like that's enough like I have friends that have like eight subscriptions and I'm like, what are you doing? Like, are you just sitting at home, like just watching movies for like 10 hours a day? And they're not doing that either. And so like, why do you need eight subscriptions? So I only have Netflix. So I can only recommend stuff off of Netflix. I have in my list, I've seen this movie before, Ex Machina. Have you seen that? It's a very good movie. Yeah. With um, Alicia uh, Oscar Vikander. Isaac and yep. Alicia Vikander, which... Oh. She's such an amazing woman. I really loved her in um, Tomb Raider, by the way, but I know a lot of people didn't, uh, but I thought she was fine. Yeah, yeah. So I've seen that movie. It's definitely, I don't know, I would. I've, I feel comfortable putting it in my top 25 for all-time movies. Um, so I kind of want to rewatch that. I watched a couple of movies and I'm just like blanking. One that comes to mind is, I think it's called The Platform and it's a Spanish movie. Yep, Have you seen that? Have you yeah, seen the trailer? I saw that. I've seen it. It's in my must-watch list, but yeah, I've seen the trailer. It's good. It's unique. After like finishing the movie, I didn't leave like, oh my God, I got to tell everyone to watch this. It's not one of those movies, um, but it, it was definitely an interesting watch. I think especially for like people like you and I, where we try to read like the the undertones of a movie and all of that. Um, it's definitely an interesting watch. One that I didn't watch like recently since we've been locked down that I really enjoyed. It's a movie called About Time. Have you seen that? I, I've seen it a few weeks ago. Did with, you really? Um, it's about like the time traveling love story. Yeah. 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 I love that. It's in my top 10. Now. For real? Oh my God. Yeah. It, that movie was not on my radar, but a friend recommended it. And I was like, I watched the trailer and I was like, this is going to be so cheesy and dumb. <laughs> That's and I also with Damo Gleason from X Yes, yes, yes. Um, and I loved it. And I don't, I, I, I don't really know why because man, I guess I do know why. But the movie is so diverse. Like it's, it's. I thought it was going to be a romantic comedy. That's why I thought it was going to be super cheesy. And it, it is that. But it's also like a philosophical movie about life and time travel. And it's also a drama about family and like finding yourself and all of that and so there's so many different components to it and i just thought you you have to give it a chance because you might think especially like from a guy's perspective you're like oh this is like a girl's movie um <laughs> but when you watch it man you are gonna laugh you are gonna have a good time and you're probably yeah, gonna definitely. cry oh that's a crier yeah man those were uh three wonderful selections i do want to say before i move on to the final news stories i definitely agree with you on the hype thing like there's been movies that have been hyped and hyped and hype and then when you go see them like you have this high expectation 
expectation of them and they let you down. Uh, but I, I mean, this is kind of a, a brag, I guess, a humble brag. But I was sent Tiger King from my like animal friends well before it became popular. So I was I watched it as soon as it came on Netflix. I just want to I want to point I want to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah. And I trust you, man. Like if you say that and then uh, we had we talked about it a little bit before we turned the mics on, too. So per your recommendation, I'm probably like 20 percent closer to actually checking it out. <laughs> I appreciate that. All right, man, let's jump into our last news story of this episode. This is from the Atlantic family. How many people have to die before we're done with gender reveals? In October of 2019, an Iowa woman was killed when her family inadvertently built a pipe bomb as part of their gender reveal party, a gathering at which expectant parents dramatically and colorfully announced the sex of their baby. The first public video of a gender reveal was posted in 2008, and it would later become a worldwide trend on YouTube during the mid to 2011s onward. In the beginning, reveals would consist of cutting into a cake to reveal blue or pink frosting, but in the past couple of years, the the alcohol is starting to hit a little bit now. <laughs> uh, some kind of communal madness has taken hold, and many of these feats of gender performance have got more elaborate, more public, and more dangerous. In 2018, a father-to-be, Dennis Dickey, started a 47,000-acre wildfire in Arizona after shooting an explosive target full of the corresponding gender's powder color. The reveal caused $8.2 million in damage and cost Dennis $222,000 in restitution after pleading guilty in a federal court to a misdemeanor charge of causing a fire without a permit. For those interested, the new father was having a boy. In Texas, a plane stalled and crashed while attempting to crop dust a field with 350 gallons of pink water in honor of an unborn girl. No one was killed or injured in that one. And then finally, the Klebert family received backlash from animal rights activists after using their pet alligator and a watermelon to reveal the sex of the baby. Many commenters called out the unsafe situation with young children around and what looked like animal abuse towards the gator. Many people do have calm gender reveals that don't involve any explosion, plane crashes, or wild animals, but even those come with baggage and their fair share of controversy. Not only does the very idea of a gender reveal conflate gender with biological sex, but many parties reinforce outdated masculine and feminine stereotypes. Troubles can also ensue if a parent was hoping for one sex, it turned out to be another sex, and their disappointment and ends up immortalized online. Gender reveals are loud, bright public affirmations of the gender binary in a time when people are becoming more skeptical of the concept. Carly Gessler, a York College scholar, wrote, Perhaps those unsettled by an era more accepting of gender fluidity became motivated to mark their unborn children's sex. Jenna Kay, the woman who began the trend in 2008, as I mentioned, to celebrate having a successful pregnancy after previously having pregnancies end in miscarriages, has since, dis- has since distanced herself from the worldwide trend, saying her views on sex and gender has changed, saying to her own daughter. She's telling me, Mom, there are many genders. Mom, there's many different sexualities in all different types. Jenna continues, I know it's been harmful to some individuals. It's 2019 when she was interviewed. We don't need to get our joy by giving others pain. I think there's a new way to have these parties. Celebrate the baby. Let's just have cake. A new life is a joyful thing, worthy of celebration. But these rituals have become scripted and set designed to produce just the kind of dramatic visuals that play well on social media and are shared not just with those who will be part of the child's life forever, but also strangers online. Bigger, more outlandish spectacles could be a part of projecting the highness of the moment in a couple's life out into the world, but there is something to be said for an unscripted 
joy. Uh, Min, I want to ask you, do you believe gender reveals have become outdated in current society? Yeah, I think gender reveals were always sort of outdated. Like, what does it like? I don't know. I guess like it does help you again, like as we talked about in the first story, like at least you and I have the ability to sort of place ourselves in the current paradigm of like how quote unquote normal people think. And so, yeah, are there benefits to knowing and um, just sort of letting other people know i guess so like if having girl appropriate or boy appropriate toys and clothes like matters to you there are certain advantages that way but also like at the same time like that is such like a social construct it's just weird to me that like you know girls get certain toys and boys get certain toys and so like i don't know for me i play video games with girls and i almost prefer that because you know like girls are equally as good at video games when they have the same support like so many times like i think it's like the, the the stem field where you know you find like there aren't as many girls but that's because of other variables it's not because they're girls it's just because society doesn't value women in that field and then at the same time like if you reverse it like i'm the kind of guy that likes shopping for clothes like why do i have to feel weird or quote unquote gay for liking clothes that's like really weird to me anytime there's sort of a weird social construct that bugs me but especially when there's a social construct that is so obvious that it's bullshit that really bugs me i definitely i definitely um agree with you there as far as the party um as long as you're being like to me as long as you're being safe and responsible i don't care it's your family it's your choice how you deem necessary to celebrate new life obviously dennis dickey in his situation by the way very close to dennis duffy from 30 rock which is on amazon prime by the way <laughs> uh who might actually dennis duffy might actually do something similar to what dennis dickey did uh but he never meant to start a wildfire he wasn't being a responsible and as safe as he could have been, but it was an accident, a $8.2 million accident that luckily nobody was hurt from, but an accident nonetheless. He was charged. He's now paying for his crime. Move on. But when it comes to the idea of gendering your baby before birth and bringing in all the stereotypes of blue and sports for boys and pink and prison princesses for girls and you know like what you were saying and like i love beauty products and i love hair products and i love going shopping and a cooking which is weirdly all these weird stereotypes that are just ridiculous so yeah i definitely understand it's a very outdated philosophy and as someone who tries to be as factually biased in my beliefs i do believe our sex is based on our biological genitalia birth male and female uh that's the biological standpoint i believe if i'm wrong and a listener is more in tuned into gender identity please correct me on that i want to learn but if you are someone who believes you do not comfortably fall in one of those biological binary genders and you identify as another gender on the gender spectrum, fuck yeah, man, do it. Who am I to say otherwise? I personally identify as a cis male. You are able to identify as whatever makes you comfort comfortable to be you. That's how the world should work. Unfortunately, we're not currently at a place where it does. For example, at the moment, the U.S. has no federal laws protecting people from employment discrimination based on their gender based on their gender identity or expression. But when you see, for instances, cases like Steven Crowder, 
talking about there only being two genders changed his mind, his whole show idea, which is actually a very, as you know, he's a very conservative p- person, but it's actually a very interesting show to watch it if you're more of a liberal uh, minded. Um, but in that situation, I think it's a case of misdefining misdef- uh, the idea of gender, your sex and once again, if I'm wrong on this, please someone correct me, but your sex is the idea of your birth genitalia. Uh, well, at least from what I understand, specifically in regards to gender, gender identity, gender is the idea of your own understanding of your personal self. So kind of to finish my uh, mountains out of mohills oration, word of the day, baby. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> um, if you're a parent with a child coming and you want a gender reveal party, have one. If you want to theme it based on sex, go ahead. It's your decision. But the big but in this um, oration, if your child ever comes to you one day and they begin to question their gender, their gender identity, listen. It's okay to have whatever belief your gender may be, you may have, but that doesn't mean your child has to have that same belief. If you're a parent and can't spend a few hours researching your child's point of views to have a responsible relationship with your child, you are not a good parent. If that makes you uncomfortable, grow up. Every single human is different. Yes, our beliefs are shaped by nurture. Children will have very similar beliefs to their parents as they grow up until they come become independent. We talked about it with your religion, men. But our beliefs are also shaped by nature. Sometimes someone deep down doesn't identify with their birth sex, no matter what is forced upon by them, and that's okay. It's okay to identify with what makes you feel the most you so yeah gender reveal parties if you want to have them have them it's totally fine i don't care it's your family it's your celebration do whatever you want to do but just remember if at a point not every kid has this discussion with his parents not every kid feels this way some kids do but when they come to you to talk about how they feel listen don't try to force a stereotype on them just because you may want your son to be a man and you may want your daughter to be a woman. Just listen and have that conversation. That's kind of, yeah, it's it is, it's an outdated philosophy and kind of to connect it to our end of our talk about sex, or not sex, but um, death there. The human legal side of it is, yeah, you know, have that celebration, use whatever colors you want. But when you get to the, f- the philosophy of gender reveals, it is outdated and it's time to kind of move on and be more accepting, if that makes sense. It does. And I want to reinforce some of the things that you're saying and then also make a clarification, I think, just for our conversation, because maybe you and I are a little behind on the terminology um, because it's kind of the forefront of, you know, non-binary genders. I'm going to like my perspective is gender is probably not binary. Um, it does seem like a construct. And I think the article also specified, like when you and I talk about boys and girls, I think we're referring to biological sex. Like yes. you said, like mm-hmm. it just more about what the, the, like if you took a biology class and had the birds and the bees conversation, like you need two sides to that. And so when I talk about that, I'm talking about biological sex, but I do think, um, gender like you're sort of explaining like how someone feels on the inside what they feel on the inside i'm sure is very true but previous to let's say five years ago even gender was binary it was considered binary and so i consider that a construct a social construct where biological sex um i think is a very real thing and even that is not 
always binary. Um, and so um, just so that we're able to move forward with this conversation without having to pause about terms every time, that's just how I'm going to refer to it for the next half hour or however long this goes. I think this article was actually really efficient. Like it talked about some of those distinctions in like six paragraphs. It brought up that. It talked about um, how human nature is about one-upping each other. And so like gender reveal parties 10 years ago probably don't look like the gender reveal parties that we see on social media just a year ago. And it talks about how social media has influenced all of this. So like there's one, it's one thing if like people in the community are trying to one-up each other, but when you're able to see a gender reveal party from across the world and you're trying to one-up somebody that is building pipe bombs um, and maybe someone in your neighborhood wouldn't necessarily do that. You you're jumping to this place of like, what can I do that's bigger and better than that? And so, if you're unable to sort of break free from one-up culture or social media culture or just the the normal paradigm of how humans interact with each other, I can see where this gets out of hand really quickly. But again, I think it takes maybe a conversation like this or being mindful and having time to pause and think about like, what is this really? Like, do I really need to do this? Like, do I really need to invest money in building a pipe bomb that shoots glitter out in a, in a certain color? Like, is that necessary? And I was going to say, I think, but at a minimum, I hope most people are able to step back from that and say, oh, right. Like now that I'm actually having this conversation, I totally see where this is unnecessary. Well, yeah, like you said, the news story mentions that these gender reveal parties have become basically not not all of them, but you know, a good handful of them are becoming like one upsmanships and social media bait. And I kind of ask you, man, a little more in depth about what you're saying. Do you believe social media will start to have an impact on gender identity moving forward, or has social media already started having that impact? Yeah, I think it has already started having that impact. Um, you and I could probably talk to someone that's maybe a little more in this field and are trying to advance the conversation about like, I, like, I don't know, I've heard some people say like some forms have like 60 different genders on there. And like, I can't even begin to think about what all of those terms could be. Like, I, my mind probably stops at like, five or six, you know? It's like when I was doing my research, like I was trying to find out like how many genders are defined out there and I could not find an answer. Every other place had a different amount and it's like, okay, all right. Yeah, it's tough. And so we could probably have a, a conversation that's of substance and build our understanding and move the conversation forward to a place that's actually productive. But I think it I think this conversation has moved on to social media and I think the current conversation is about gender pronouns and all of that is definitely not productive. Like when you think about the conversations that let's just say that would happen on Twitter or whatever, there's just a lot of finger pointing. It's just a, if you think that, you know, like your understanding about gender pronouns or if you're conflating gender pronouns and mm -hmm. biological sex as we've defined it and you think it's the same thing, well, the other side, like you and I would probably take like an educator's approach and say like, 
hey, even we don't understand enough about this to probably educate you on, but there's a difference. And like, we could talk about this, but on social media, what usually happens is that person is a transphobe or a homophobe. And then like, when that happens, then that side points back to the other side and says, well, you're not science-based or, you know, it's, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And like all those things happen. And so I just don't think that conversation is productive. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because even like when I was preparing the story, I had the line written out, you know, talking about I do believe that there are two sexes when we, you know, based on our definition of sex. And even thinking about that, I was like, I had to come up with like two, three lines after explaining that thought because I was so worried of people being like, oh, so you don't believe in this or this? And then I was like, I shouldn't have to be fearful of, and I think that's something that our social media has really brought forth in our modern age is I shouldn't have to be fearful of having a opinion. This is episode 34. You know, I've been in the podcasting industry since 2013, but I'm still always wary to have very factual based opinions because I know someone can take the smallest clip. And, you know, that's the thing I like about um podcasting if someone takes something out of context i can be like well listen to the rest of the podcast and uh but i know in other fields of media it's so easy to take something out of context and this is something like i shouldn't have to be fearful of someone who i'm very supportive of the lgbtq plus community so i shouldn't have to be fearful of saying i believe there's only two biological sexes and have to go into like a paragraph explanation of the difference between sex and gender. And I think social media is playing really a big part of that. I'm not on Twitter. I know a lot of people have asked me to get on Twitter. I know you're on Twitter, men, at Min Lee too. But I, I've always just seen Twitter as such a negative space where people are willing to throw out an opinion. And if I have more followers than you, my opinion becomes fact. And I think when we get into discussions about sex and gender and gender identity and you know this conversation in general, not all the facts are being thrown out there. It's whoever has the most followers, whoever has the most engagement on their Twitter is going to be the person that's correct. And yeah, like you said, we can't have a productive conversation from that. Yeah, it's tough. It's social media. It feels like to me, you're always walking on thin ice. Um, even in my podcast, like like you said, it's recorded, it's, it's public. And so even when I listen back on to my podcast, I really do feel like, you know, I'm really only exposing like 60% of who I am. And that's why even during this COVID-19 situation, an isolated sort of quote unquote backdoor conversation is what really gives me therapy because I know the audience that I'm talking to, they're my friends. And I know that, you know, they've known me long enough. And if they, if they do get angry at me and they misunderstood something and they do get angry at me, we're able to talk through it a little bit more and it's fun like you just yelling at each other um over like food and beers is like that's part of the entertainment um but to have it sort of cemented um on the internet and having people like i i, I agree with you too like you at least you can point and say like listen to the full context of that conversation when it's in podcast format i still don't know if you direct people to do that will they do that like they're probably set set in their ways and so like just having the ability to say whatever the hell i want um right or wrong in cer at certain times i don't know i find relief in that but i'm like you too where I, it's it's not i don't want to have those conversational so i can conversation so i can be unreasonable like I just want to have those conversations so we can still talk about facts and learn from each other, but not feel like 
I'm walking on eggshells. Yeah, no, I think that's and so important. I think, you know, when I was on um, your episode or when I was on your podcast, Quality Under Pressure podcast, we talked about like the 24-hour news cycle and like how people are only really reading headlines. People are only going to read this headline of, you know, how many people have to die before we're done with gender reveals. And they're going to take that. They're not going to, there's a good chance they're not going to read the story. They're not going to, like you said, it was so beautifully written. There's a good chance they're not going to take and read the story and really understand the whole idea behind what this author was trying to get out. Same as, you know, if someone takes something out of context from my pot or from one of our podcasts or something we say, and we can say, well, just listen to the rest of the tape. There's going to be people uh, during social media that have this three to five second attention span that are just going to be like, eh, I'm just going to trust the guy who gave me the five second clip. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not going to listen to your no 90 minute podcast but specifically with social media more towards like uh the idea of gender identity i think it's we've talked i've talked about this multiple times i'm not the biggest fan of social media just because of specifically you know and i'm speaking as a male from this even that like i have to clarify my opinion it's weird but women have a very tough time on social media they're sexualized and then you have this idea of what the perfect female is and then you know you're growing up as a young kid every of these young kids have, you know, smartphones that they can get on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, YouTube, and they see these. Uh, there's this, there's this other story that we'll cover in a later episode, but how TikTok actually blocks ugly users and moves attractive users to the front page. So you have young kids who, you know, might be questioning their identity when it comes to gender. And now on social media, they're seeing a curated list of attractive and successful people, the thin girl with the big butt and the big boobies, uh, the super cut man with the six pack and the perfect hair and the perfect beard, uh, Ryan Gosling, if I could give an example, perfect. Oh, Ryan Gosling. Yeah, it's pretty um, nice. But anyways, like young kids that are questioning their gender identity, questioning about who they are as a human are now seeing these, you know, as we talked about, these stereotypes of what you should be based on your biological sex. And they're like, well, shit, I don't look like Summer Ray, so... I'm not a real girl and I don't feel comfortable in who I am. And yeah, it's, it's, I firmly believe social media has this, this is my thesis statement here, man. I firmly believe social media does have an impact on a child's gender identity and their beliefs of what they are comfortable with when it comes to gender, not specifically their biological sex, sex, but their gender identity. I agree. And I think there's a, Another wrinkle too, where on social media, like again, one upsmanship where you want more people to see things. And so there's been times too where I'm not I'm not shy about sort of doing like political commentary on social media. And so like I there's been times where like I pause and I thought, because I think virtual signaling is a real thing. And so like sometimes I think like when I before I post something, I'm like, like, do I really believe in this or am I just saying that what's virtual signal signaling? Virtual signaling to me is like just trying to almost like trying to look good or like okay. saying certain saying certain things that you think is correct but like you don't actually believe in I, and i don't know like sometimes i i have like the self-doubt i i live in my head and have tons of self-doubt so like i think like i'm pro-women again it's so easy to just say that 
And so like sometimes I challenge myself and think about like, when are the actual times you stood up for women? And like, sometimes I'm like, oh God, I don't really know. And so like when I like post things that are like supposed to be pro-women, I always think like, am I just saying that to like impress like my feminist friends or like my liberal friends and to piss off like my Republican friends? Like, what am I actually doing when I do that? Social media introduces that weird factor that I have to think about. And so like, even I think about like, do I actually mean that? Or am I just virtue signaling? I I remember I had a conversation with a good friend and she asked me, are you a feminist? And I told her no. And when you really look at the definition of what a feminist is, it's technically not, you know, female related. It's just the empowerment of someone to get to like an equal level with another person. And I always had an idea like, oh shit, I have friends who, you know, we've had a previous guest on the podcast, Busy Stephenson, who goes above and beyond to put in the time and the passion into these social causes. And I was like, how can I compare to someone like her who's going, like you said, going above and beyond for women's rights and the right to vote and informing people. But then now, you know, I maybe had that conversation like a year or two ago. Now I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I would consider myself a feminist. You know, I do support people being on equal footing. It doesn't have to be about sex. It doesn't have to be about male versus female, The you know, all these different ideas of that. You know, take it as trying to get equal footing for an underprivileged class. Think about it that way and then ask yourself, are you a feminist? Yeah. So I think, yeah, I was like, at that time, I was like, I was just trying to say the right thing because I don't go out and march at rallies. I would love to, but I don't go out and do these things. I don't go out into the community. You know, like this podcast is my platform to speak my truth and hopefully try to, you know, bring awareness to situations. That's what, more where I'm comfortable with. But I was like, yeah, you start thinking about like, oh yeah, I'm not doing this. So I have to be like, politically correct i hate using that <laughs> phrase but yeah it's just it's just so interesting how social media and this online presence especially being two guys who share our personal opinions to thousands and thousands of people it is interesting when you really start to think about it and you know i hope the listeners kind of get an idea of what we're thinking about when we're having these conversations that we're sharing to thousands of people. Yeah, it's really interesting that you had tensions with that term feminist too, because I took a an undergraduate, I took a, a feminist course and like I thought like, oh, this is gonna be awesome. Like I feel like I'm a feminist. I'm gonna actually like learn about the history and I'll be around other feminists. I think it was a class of about fifty people. There were five guys in there and I was like, that's fine. Like I don't care. Like um I just wanna be on that side of history. And I took that class and for many years after after that class, I refuse to be labeled a feminist. Like now I'm at a point where I don't care. Like if it the term could mean different things to different people. And so instead of just sticking to a term, I would rather learn um, like we had, like we did during our atheist and agnostic conversation. Like, what does that mean to you? Maybe if our values are closer than we think, and you say that's what feminism is, well, then consider me a feminist. But what if our values are actually very different? But you consider yourself a feminist, and we see on opposite ends. Then, but then please don't call me a feminist for that conversation. But I took that class, and um, we would have these reflections, and we watched this comedy movie. I, oh, I wish I could remember what the movie was called. I think Gwyneth Paltrow was in it, and in the movie, she half the movie she's fat, and Shallow half the movie. She, 
Shallow Hell Dude, with Jack that's Black. That's the one. That's the one. Um, and we have to write a reflection on it. And to me, comedy is so important to me. I think we were talking about this when we were talking about death. Like, if I can't laugh about darkness and pain and death and all of that, then this is this is no fun. To me, comedy gets a very long leash. Stand-up comedy especially. Like, it's just weird when people, like, get mad at stand- stand-up comedians during their performance. Like, if, that, if what that person said actually offended you try to have a conversation with that person outside of their performance to see where they actually stand on that so like in my reflection like i wrote like i get where people are coming from um and i get the the literature that we read leading up to this movie because we probably watched like five different movies in that class um we would read stuff and then watch a movie and then have a reflection on it and i just wrote like this is a comedy movie and so i get where it could be offensive to certain people, but I just, it's hard for me to get upset about the female representation, like the female body and like representation and, and all of that. And I got a D on that project. And I was just like, what? I was just like, I thought we were supposed to have a conversation, like yeah. an actual mm-hmm. conversation about this. And it's just like, you know, like the rubric says, like, as long as you support it with like p- points in the movie and some of the literature that we're reading, um, you should get a good grade. And that's what I did. And I was just like, oh, like, you just don't like what I yeah, said. You, you're grading on your own belief system, not on having an that's open right. conversation. That's right. And so like after that, I was just like, oh, man, no one, please don't call me a feminist. And so, <laughs> but like, like I said, I'm in a better place now. But like, yeah, it, it pissed me off for a long time. Yeah, And I know, you know, kind of wrapping up the story, a lot of what we judge people on is very subjective and when you get you know like i mentioned when you get into social media where the loudest voice wins being subjective about a topic doesn't matter as long as you're the loudest voice as long as you have the most people behind you you're kind of the judge jury and the executioner i think when you know kind of putting it back to gender identity and gender reveal parties i think it's such it can be such a negative space. I want to make that very clear. Social media is such an amazing platform. The the way we are able to connect people around the world. We are connected right now, man, because I found you guys through social media and I love the product you are putting out. And now we're able to have this beautiful conversation because of social media. And I think if we use social media responsibly, it can be such a good platform but like as i talked about in my mountains and mohills oration i think i've used that word five times very happy with myself excellent you know a part of being a good parent is making sure you have responsible conversations with your children and a part of now new parents a part of that conversation is talking about how social media affects specifically in this case can affect how you view yourself and view your gender identity. So man, I just want to ask you what are your final thoughts on gender identity, gender reveal parties? Well, I want to I want to tack on a point about social media. I think social media is definitely an empty vessel. I think so many times like people just point the finger at social media and say social media is at fault, but like you said, it's to me it's just this empty vessel. It's this platform. If if social media is negative, I think it's the people that occupy that space that made it negative. Very good so point, we should yeah. point our, the fingers at ourselves. Um, gender reveal parties, let's stop, please. Like it's just a waste of money, waste of resources, waste of time, waste of bandwidth. And I think as this conversation about, again, not biological sex, but about gender advances, um, people will begin to realize. Like, I think that conversation about like boy girl or boy toys and girl toys, um, and like boy clothes and girl toys. We know at this point that's sort of like a marketing thing that happened. You have that conversation with people, and they realize, oh, 
that's bullshit. And so as the conversation around gender advances, I think people will realize that sort of a social construct too. So like if if one day, let's say like five years from now, where we all have learned and there are 60 terms that we need to abide by, what are you going to do at a gender reveal party? You're going to have 60 different like cakes ready <laughs> to like find out like who your baby uh-huh. is. And so like, I, I hope it gets to a point where it's so absurd. Like everyone's like, no, I just don't want to do that. Yeah. It, this is um, a story I'll add here that I was just so dumbstruck by. So I went on a date with this girl and she asked like, which was, I think was a very good question. She's like, you know, what's a toy that you've like, you wanted as a kid that you never got? And I was like, you know what? I really always wanted like an easy bake oven to make some pineapple upside down cakes just to really get in it. Um, Cause I love cooking. I love baking. I love doing all those things. And she, she responded with, and these aren't the, I don't remember exactly what she said, but I remember the essence of the idea. And she was like, what are you, a homosexual or something? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, why does me wanting to cook and bake mean I am a homosexual? It just made no sense. But to my final point on gender reveal parties, I do agree with you, men, on the philosophy of gender identity. I disagree with you on the parties or gender reveal parties. I you know, I'm someone who, like I said, you are literally bringing a child into this life. You're bringing life to a world. Celebrate that shit. I mean, maybe it doesn't, maybe where I can find common ground with you on the parties is it doesn't need to be like a gender reveal party. It can just be a celebration of having a baby party. But yeah, just like how I believe in celebrating death, celebrate life. Yeah, I agree. I, I We didn't talk about this in the death conversation, but life is so precious and it is such an accident. And I think to me, like, that's why the moments that we have mean more. Like, if I thought I had a second life coming, it kind of diminishes the time that I actually do have right here, right now. And because I don't believe in that, and I also like learning the science of, like, how much of a freak occurrence life is that, you know, like, if it was common, the universe itself would be teeming with life. And we know that it's not. And so, like, I agree with you. Like, life is like this super special thing, considering all of that. It's this super special thing, but at the same time, not very special thing because the universe is dispassionate. And ultimately, like, my it, it's, life is going to end one day and it doesn't mean anything. But for us, subjectively, we should celebrate it because it is like this super rare thing in this special occasion. So celebrate it. Just, let's just not make any more pipe bombs. <laughs> you don't need to make pipe bombs. And kind of to end my point, it's like, I, you know, I really like the ideas of nihilism. I think that's the correct um, term. Yep. You know, since nothing really matters, everything can matter. And I think that's kind of my philosophy on life and death and all those things. I agree. Can I make one clarification real quick? Also, like there's so many times where when you have a conversation like this, you I think you put it's it's so easy for the conversation's sake um, to make it super convenient to put one thing on one side and the other thing on the other side. And I try not to do that. So like when we talked about like there's a group of people trying to advance the conversation and there's a group over here that just get mad um, anytime they get called a homophobe, like those groups aren't the same. Like there's one group that's trying to advance the the good and one group that's sort of just being the anchor and they're opposed to change. I see this when it comes to like climate change. For some reason, climate change deniers and people, the scientists that are talking about climate change, they get the same weight and it, that shouldn't be the case. Um, and so to, again, to be able to see the gradations and sort through the different variables. I think that's important. Like when people talk about like, oh, like, you know, I'm on politics, 
you see the same thing happen on both sides. Like Fox News is the same as MSNBC. Like I don't like either, but I also don't think they're the same. Like there's so many times where like I watch Fox News and I'm like, dude, that's just like made up. And then like on MSNBC, I'm like, well, they're not telling the whole story. And I'm like that upsets me, but like it's not the same. And so like with like the gender battle, the climate change battle, um, it's just so easy to make the conversation convenient to say it's one side and the other, but it's not. Sometimes they're not equal. The opposing sides are not equal sometimes. No, I love it. I love it. Uh, Min, thank you for taking the time to share your perspective about some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a fun and meaningful discussion. Once again, if you want to check out more of the Quality Under Pressure podcast, you can do so by following QUP Podcast on Twitter or by going to Quality Under Pressure on Facebook or Instagram. Or if you just want more of Min, you can follow him on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Min Lee Two. Uh, so Min, we discuss a little bit about it, but but what can listeners be expecting from Quality Under Pressure podcast in the coming months of quarantine? I know you just released an episode, I believe, yesterday about uh, that you had recorded in December, uh, which would have been like April 12th. We're recording this April 13th. Um, but yeah, what can listeners expect? Yeah, so I had a couple of episodes backlog- backlogged, and so I was able to release those, and we recorded those in studio as normal episodes. I'm in the process of that, so I'm really glad that we did this to give um, this sort of virtual recording a test run. I do want to set um, something up and just do sort of like a, a mass qualitative interview with a bunch of people about how COVID-19 is affecting their lives. And so if that comes to be, otherwise, um, it's very possible that work gets in the way and um, other things get in the way where the podcast is put on pause until we have access to the studio again and we could record in a physical space. But I, I think it'd be a really interesting case study to set up something virtual and talk to, I don't know, 10 different people and see how similar or different their experiences have been. Yeah. And that for listeners who don't know, Quality Under Pressure podcast, you guys have three different people, you know, yourself, Min, Andy, and Dean. So it's not like where this podcast, I can just figure out when it works in my schedule. You kind of have to coordinate, you know, a two other schedules outside of yourself so yeah it's it is it gets tough <laughs> yeah yeah so uh, yeah no I, I was just gonna say the future is unknown but hopefully um we can sort of you know use this time to to explore something yeah well you know when it you figure it out i'd love to be back on the podcast i really want to just talk about podcast and like we can title it like the podcast bible but i think you know we have two successful or you know what you would call successful podcasts in the industry and i would just love to talk about like what we like about podcasts, what we hate about podcasts, what people need to stop doing, uh, what they should be doing. The biggest thing, I'll I'll just get off my chest right now, is to give people a little taste, is if you're releasing an audio-first content, make sure the audio is good. I'm not going to listen to you for 60 minutes in shitty audio. So just, that's a little taste of what can be expected. Yeah, I'm excited, man. I would love to have that conversation with you. (laughs) All right. uh, Thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by men from Quality Under Pressure Podcast, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and just try to have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. Once again, if you'd like to reach out to the show with a strange local news story or if you just want to share some of your own comments you can do so at watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com Min, last time you allowed Andy to close out the show this time you don't have that option unless you just want to call him up (laughs) but 
Uh, Men, the floor is yours. Close out the show. No, I know that we're trying to avoid COVID content and conversations on this show, but I really hope, you know, everyone is doing okay. And I want to thank you for having this conversation because I don't know. I just find therapy and having sort of deeper conversations. And so just to reiterate, I hope everyone is okay. Thank you for putting out content and hosting these conversations and finding cool platforms to do it. Cause it's like, you know, I was like, I have to do my homework, but you had already done yours. And so, yeah, the world is crazy, but hopefully like we, like you, like you've done, build small communities and keep each other sane. No, I appreciate that. And yeah, I think it's, it's such a interesting time for creators to really step forward and, be a leading force in providing positivity and just good content that can take our minds off of what we got going on. Uh, all right, guys, we will be back, uh, you know, next week. We're on a pretty consistent schedule these days with uh, nothing else to do. So we will be back next week with episode 35 with author Cecil Harris talking about some uh, sporting things, uh, a little more focus on tennis on that one, if uh, any tennis fans out there. But and then but in, ooh, the, the alcohol is really hidden. Uh, but until then, peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. What an episode, what a guest, what a time. Once again, I know I sure enjoyed it. Uh, thank you to Min for jumping in on a remote interview to talk about these stories. And as always, make sure to support him and Quality Under Pressure podcast by following the associated links in the description of this episode. And as of recording this corrections, uh, Quality Under Pressure has been releasing a few new episodes with a, rot- with a wide array of folks talking about their experiences with COVID-19. So if that's the kind of content you want to be consuming, make sure to support their show as well. But to the corrections. Uh, in the first story about our old Doris being being blown to smithereens by the U.S. military, I'm so sorry. Uh, I mentioned the post-death option of being recycled back into the earth as a tree. The story I had read about was about the biodegradable capsule in which your remains are placed in an egg-shaped biodegradable urn. You're still you're still uh, cremated, but your remains are put in this biodegradable urn and buried underneath a tree sapling to provide nutrients to the growth of that tree. During that story, Min shared his experience growing up as a Seventh-day Adventist. A bit more background on that, they are a Protestant Christian denomination who observes Saturday, the seventh day in Christian calendars, and I also believe in Jewish calendars too. They observe Saturday as a Sabbath, and they also emphasize the second coming, the Advent of Jesus Christ. In contrast, I mentioned the Church of Satan gaining tax exemption. That was actually the uh, Satanic Temple, and they gained tax exemption status around this time in April last year, 2019. And such things that I mentioned, you know, they have pretty, I mean, normal and good fundamentals. Um, a few of their seven fundamentals include, one should strive to act with compassion and empathy towards all creatures in accordance with reason. The struggle for justice is an ongoing and necessary pursuit that should prevail over laws and institutions. And people are fallible. If we make a mistake, we should do our best to rectify and resolve any harm that may have been caused. Um, I don't know what that voice was, but you know, that's just the satanic temple is just another example of don't judge that book by its cover, people. Don't do it. Furthermore, from that story, I mentioned the average human life expectancy to be in the 70 to 80 range. According to scientists and doctors, the average like the average life expectancy of Homo sapiens is 79 years. I mentioned the prophet of Mormonism being named John Smith. It's actually Joseph Smith. I'm 
pretty close. Uh, uh, you can listen to those episodes of last podcast on the left that I mentioned, starting with episode 378, Mormonism Part 1. And then a little quick correction in the Men in Black mention. Our universe is not being held in the color of Orion the Cat, but it is instead the Archelian Galaxy, which the Archelians actually use this galaxy as a source of power. But at the end of the movie, uh, the aliens are playing with all these marbles, and it turns out galaxies are in the marbles. Who knows how all that works? Watch the movie, Men in Black fantastic movie. And then the final correction from our first story, more so additional information because it's so damn interesting, is about Dr. Doom and the Doom War storyline. I'm going to break it down for you real quick here. So Dr. Doom is trying to conquer Wakanda, which nobody has been able to do for like thousands of years. I don't think it's ever been conquered now that I'm thinking about it. Um, You know, Wakanda has been this technological powerhouse because they have vibranium. So Dr. Doom is like, you know what, if I just break into this vibranium vault... I should be able to control Wakanda and be this all-powerful being. So to break into this vault, he not only has to bypass scientific and magical locks, but he has to bear his soul to Bass the Panther God. She's this gigantic magical white panther. So anyways, he goes through all the locks, the magical and scientific locks. Boom, easy. He's Dr. Doom, whatever. He gets to Bass and he rips off his armor and he offers himself up to judgment to her. You know, Bass encompassing the whole damn page like a badass says, Lord, to me, Doom, and I will devour you. That's what I think she would sound like if there was a live-action movie. So, anyways, Doom reveals his ultimate truth, the reason for his perceived villainy to her, and in the end, it turns out that Doom, who's this magical sorcerer who has seen a hundred thousand futures, has seen in only one of the futures, mankind uniting, flourishing, and most importantly, surviving. Guess what future that one is? Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, it's the one where Doctor Doom rules with an iron fist. So, because of this, Bast, who is shocked by the purity of Doom's act of villainy, has no choice but to cede the vault to Doom as he's passed the test she herself had set to protect the people of Wakanda. He's pure in his intentions. Now, we can go into a deeper discussion about how the Doom 2099 storyline changed around the Doom War storyline, but I'll save you guys from that, and we'll keep it for another episode. And then the final correction of our episode comes from the second story about gender reveals and gender identity. I had mentioned the definition of feminism being about the equality of the sexes. The actual dictionary definition, uh, just to have it out there, of feminism is the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of the equality of the sexes. All right, Water Coolians, that's another Corrections Corner. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. This little this little show here I'm doing in my uh, basement. Uh, having a good time doing it. But once again, thank you to Min for joining us and talking about some of the strangest and most weirdest news stories the world has to offer. Once again, if you felt a connection to Min, make sure to check him out by following the links associated with this episode. But as always, that's your Corrections, and that's your episode. So get out of here. Just, just get out of here, man. Get out of here. Get out of here. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real.